Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by my company, BullRealty.com. Check it out. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit BullRealty.com. Well, today we have a very exciting show for you today, and I look forward to this show every year. I know you've heard of emerging trends in real estate. This is an incredible publication that's put out once a year, and it's been going on for 41 years, and everyone kind of waits and wants to know what's in the Emerging Trends Report. Uh, this was put out by ULI and a PwC, and uh, my guest today is Mitch Rochelle, and he is a partner with PwC. We're going to ask Mitch about the highlights in the report. Mitch, thanks for joining us again. Thanks, Michael. Uh, unfortunately, this is a phoner. I planned to be uh, in Studio One, but uh, unfortunately, I, I couldn't make it. And then we tried to do it by video Skype. So we're going back old school here and using the telephone. Yeah, there you go. Well, we can't see your smiling face. We'll just have a picture up of uh, there. Right there. <laughs> I'm going to make sure. I, I get approval rights on that photo. <laughs> anyway, you're going to pick my high school graduation picture or something. <laughs> there you go. And, uh, and Mitch, most people are familiar with the Emerging Trends Report, but uh, in, in brevity, tell our audience about you know how this started and, and, and how is it done, and why is so it done? That, is it? And why is it done? It's, it's done purely so that it can air on your show each and every <laughs> year. But uh, aside from that, uh, as you mentioned in the open, we've been doing it for 41 years. Uh, we, PwC, have been partnering with the Urban Land Institute on a global basis to deliver the report, not only in the United States and Canada, which this issue that we'll talk about um, is, is out and been out for a little bit now. Uh, we do it in Europe and we do it in Asia, which those reports are coming out shortly. Uh, this year we hit a record 2,200 real estate professionals were either interviewed or surveyed for the report. And they really come from every possible walk of life, uh, the, the primary pool that we survey are the members of ULI, plus other names that we've added to the list uh, to receive a survey every year. But 2,200 people got back to us from around the world, and it's every possible nook and cranny geographically and vocation-wise. So it's engineers, architects, developers, appraisers, brokers, principals, tenants, landlords, and that really gives a wide um, array of opinions and points of view, and that's what makes the report so uh, valuable each year, and I'm thrilled to be a part of it, and I'm always thrilled to come on your show to talk about it. Well, thank you, Mitch, and uh, I think I was one of the, the guys uh, interviewed. I think I was interviewed by Hugh Kelly, um, and, uh, and then we've had the, the benefit of having uh, Byron Carlock on the show with you uh, before, and we're missing uh, this year. Well, the first thing I need to ask you, Mitch, is how has sentiment changed from last year? Is there, is there much of a change? What's really interesting is I honestly, Michael, would have expected uh, sentiment to have changed a little bit. Uh, we ask, uh, what Michael's referring to is we ask the audience every year, what are the prospects for profitability for the industry for the upcoming year? And we ask the participants to give us that feedback on a one to five scale, where one is abysmal, and five is excellent, sort of the way Uber drivers rate you when you get out of their car. And interestingly enough, the sentiment is as strong today as it was uh, a year ago. A year ago when I was on your program and we were talking about it, we were 
contemplating that we may potentially be late in the cycle and start to see people get a little less enthusiastic about um, the prospects of profitability of the industry. And I think, honestly, you and I have had that conversation every year for the last six or seven. I think I've been doing this with you for a long time. But it's as strong today as it was yesterday, uh, and it was as strong as it was the day before that. And what's interesting is why. Now, there's a couple of things. One, if you look at the folks who said good or excellent, so those are people who said that it's either a four or a five, and kind of use that Uber metaphor in your head for a second, that, those numbers are coming down very, very slightly. And I think there's a graph that, uh, uh, for those people who are catching this in video, we'll see. Uh, and the folks that are saying it, eh, those are the people who said it's a three, are rising slightly. But that is ever, ever so slightly. If you just look at it on a historical basis the last several years, the group that are saying it's good or excellent are really about the same. And those people, those bitter people who think it's abysmal, those half-dozen folks, I think they're the same half-dozen folks every year, and uh, they haven't changed, and they're still living in this uh, half-empty world. So the question really is, why is, are the prospects of profitability so strong when they're this late in the cycle? And I think the simple answer is, and we'll jump into that probably as, as a follow-up question, is there aren't a lot of investment alternatives out there. And as I say that, the economy still is very strong, which means the fundamentals for real estate are strong. So we'll unpack that more as uh, the interview goes on. But um, I think we're still sitting in a very good place for the real estate asset class. So is the sentiment of the people you surveyed and interviewed uh, that the cycle is still strong and that uh, 2020 looks good? And, you know, what, what do they say about the, their, their attitude on the length of the cycle? So it's interesting. We did this um, interview and survey process in late July, bulk, bulk of it in August, and a little bit in early September. And if you go back to the news headlines at the time, none of them were particularly rosy. At that time, I think the R word was being bantered about in the media more than ever before. Um, one jobs report that wasn't so great, um, one manufacturing PMI that looked bad, and a lot of people were running around with chickens with their head cut off screaming, recession, recession, recession. So that was the backdrop. And we all know that a strong, healthy economy and job creation are the very things that create demand for our favorite asset class. So why did people feel so strong? I'm going to answer that question by taking you back on a little bit of a history lesson, if you don't mind, which is if you go back as far as almost biblical times and you look at the way that wealth has been accumulated on the planet, there's really only two ways historically that wealth has been created. One is precious metals. And... I'll come back to that in a second. The other basket is real estate or property, however you want to call it. So those are the two baskets. There's the property basket, there's the precious metals basket. If you unpack that precious metals basket and look at that over time, that's evolved into all asset classes that are trading assets. So stocks, bonds, currencies, even precious metals. Um, anything with the QCIP number, Bitcoin, I'd throw that in that cryptocurrency, I'd throw that in the, um, the precious metal basket. The property basket hasn't really changed much. It's evolved, but it hasn't really changed that much. Two things happen in times of volatility. One is within the precious metals basket, the trading asset basket, people start to rotate to 
the most stable assets in that basket because there's volatility because it's a volatile basket because it's a trading asset basket. They rotate towards precious metals, so gold. We saw gold run up in price uh, over the summer. And then they start rotating towards um, treasury securities and currencies that they feel most comfortable with. So U.S. dollar-denominated treasuries, um, that's where they ran. But one other thing happens in times of uncertainty or in volatility. People rotate out of the trading asset basket into the property basket. So at that time when people were most worried about things geopolitically, U.S. politically, is this recession about to happen or what have you, believe it or not, they rotate towards real estate as opposed to away from it because the contractual nature of cash flows in real estate become very appealing to investors in a time of uncertainty. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, especially we look at some of the property types that are really doing well now, like multifamily and industrial. One would expect that uh, those should remain strong in a downturn. But there's a lot of other things, right, Mitch, that, that could impact uh, the economy and commercial real estate uh, as well. And one of those is, is the job market. And we've had a strong job market. What is the sentiment looking forward there? Yeah, and this this show will probably potentially air after the the, the October jobs report um, drops. The, the fact of the matter there is you may see a drop in the October jobs because of the auto strike as, as well as um, the you know what's going on at a big airframe manufacturer uh, where there's been some job loss there, um, and the construction segment. Um, actually is the one that I pay the most attention to because that's the one that's most highly correlated with the real estate sector. Mm -hmm. um, but manufacturing jobs because of all the trade noise, and I did a show with you on trade, uh, a fall off. But I think by and large, if our economy is capable late in the cycle of producing 100,000 non-farm non jobs every month, and that's both government uh, and private sector jobs, and that's down considerably from the 200,000 mark that we were producing, you know, maybe for the last three years. I think that's still strong, and that's still a good sign that there's demand for real estate. If for some reason our jobs number went in the opposite direction, that would be perhaps more of a warning sign to me that there's trouble ahead if that happened for a couple of months. That's probably more of a warning sign than even an inverted yield curve potentially was. But um, I still think fundamentally we're creating jobs. And, you know, we have the lowest unemployment rate in almost my lifetime. And what's even more amazing about that is the difference between the unemployed population and the number of job openings that are out there is still north of a million. So there are a million unfilled jobs out there. Um, if anything is slowing down our job creation is that there just aren't people with the right skills to fill those jobs. Right, right. We need more people in a lot of these jobs. We need more people. Yeah, especially in, in construction. Well, we're going to take a short break. When we get back, on want to Misk about some other things like what does what his group, what do his surveyed people think about GDP growth? Uh, what about consumer confidence? We're a big consumer market. All of it affects the future of commercial real estate. Let's skate where the puck is going. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease commercial real estate? 
you're invited to contact Bull Realty for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Call 404-876-1640 or visit bullrealty.com. Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Welcome back. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show, and I'm Michael Bull. This segment is brought to you by commercialagentsuccess.com. Check it out if you are a commercial real estate broker. Today we're talking about emerging trends in real estate. This is uh, part two of our show, and we're talking with Mitch Rochelle. He's a partner with PwC, and PwC and ULI put out this uh, report every year, and everyone kind of waits to see, hey, what what's it going to say in emerging trends? And so we've got Mitch on the phone, and Mitch, we where we left off and, and from uh, the first segment is really curious about the consumer. I mean, we're we're a big consumer-driven market here, especially you know, in the U.S. So uh, what's your expectations there according to uh, the Emerging Trends Report? What's interesting is I, I don't think that most real estate folks, and I'm glad you brought up the consumer, which is 70% of our economy, and uh, we're going to get a GDP read uh, this week to see how third quarter GDP turned out. But I don't think most people realize um, how much the consumer drives our economy. What's interesting about real estate folks, they tend to focus on the housing market and use the housing market as some sort of harbinger of the future growth in GDP. But the fact of the matter is the thing, as you appropriately pointed out, Michael, you've got to focus on the consumer. So if you look at the two gauges of consumer behavior, one is consumer confidence, uh, which came out uh, recently, which showed a slight decline. And if you look at consumer sentiment, which comes from University of Michigan, go blue. Um, that's for the Michigan folks that are listening. Um, you'll find that uh, that dipped a little bit. But by and large, the reading in absolute terms is still relatively strong for an economy that's in its 11th year of expansion. So, and, and the other thing to remember is these are confidence surveys, no different than Emerging Trends does a sentiment survey. And there is some correlation between that and how consumers spend. I think the ultimate barometer for us to keep an eye on is big ticket purchases. So we see existing home sales starting to pick up again. We see automotive sales starting slowly to pick up again both of which have been somewhat um, helped by lower interest rates. Uh, the, the whole point of monetary policy and stimulus is to get people to go back and buy those things and hopefully to get business to invest at the same time. So I think we're seeing relatively good things. And we have the holiday season you know, right in front of us. Uh, I know that satellite radio already turned one of the channels over to, to holiday music, which is, you know, seems a little bit early. I haven't even bought my candy corn yet, and they're already, you know, decking the halls here. But the fact of the matter is, I think you got to look at this holiday season. If you look at the National Retail Federation's estimate for holiday sales, if you look at our survey, PwC, that we do on holiday sales, all showing relatively strong gains over last year. So I think the consumer is still strong. And for whatever reason, maybe the consumer is just not paying attention to the news. They're not looking at all of these things that are going on in the news and saying to themselves, wait a second, we have to pull back. 
Because I think at the end of the day, consumer behavior is more about economics in the, in the home than it is economics as reported in the media. So I don't think a consumer wakes up in the morning and says, what does third quarter GDP's first print look like? <laughs> I think a consumer looks at the Friday paycheck and says, wait a second, my wages are up close to 4% over last year. I feel good. I'm going to buy something. Yeah. And, uh, or, or we're saving more money than we did last year. So I think we can afford that trip or we can afford that car. So I think consumer behavior is really in the pocketbook and it's in the home. And it's not necessarily something that's reported by a government agency or a university. Yeah. And, of course, all this affects how commercial real estate might perform moving forward. And as you interview um, 2,200 industry participants about their, their thoughts on what uh, NOI growth will be, in commercial real estate moving forward, what's the sentiment there? What 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 is everyone thinking? And that's, you know, that if we can grow NOI, we can grow values, right? And right, correct, Michael. And they feel good. They don't always know why. When I do interviews, I often ask follow-up questions to their questions. When they tell me they feel good, I say why. And I don't think people have really fundamentally grasped the fact that. The amount of discipline showed by our industry in this expansion is unlike any other expansion that you or I have probably seen. There's tremendous overbuilding in most economic expansions, um, and those overbuildings sort of create the next um, collapse. But we haven't seen that. And I think it's the discipline of the financial services industry. It's the discipline of capital in general. We have a hundred of $211 billion of dry powder sitting on the sidelines for real estate investment in, in private equity and, uh, and other sources. That's unprecedented that it's sitting on the sidelines. It, it's maybe equally unprecedented that it's been aggregated, but just the fact that it, you know, I've always said that lenders and builders and developers are verbs, not nouns. And I say lenders lend and, and developers develop, but you know, both are sort of stepping back and saying, wait a second, the thing's not fully pre-leased, we're going to wait. And we never saw that in the past. Uh, there was a whole lot of field of dreams that existed in real estate in our lifetime, right? And we'll build it and they'll show up. And we're, we're just not doing that. So that discipline is what's giving rise to rising NOIs because we do have demand, we have low supply, and when demand is up and supply is, is stable or down, prices go up. That's what's happening in the housing market. That's what's happening in the multifamily market. Um, so I just think it's actually our discipline. We should pat ourselves on the back. It's our discipline that's creating um, the potential for the future. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. And, you know, of course, everyone realizes that construction costs have really been a, a significant uh, increase over time. And, you know, it's like the, a lot of the properties we're selling now, you know, it's like uh, this is under replacement costs. And we're like... Duh! I mean, everything <laughs> seems to be yeah, everything's under replacement <laughs> cost. Because, I mean, that's got to help us as well, right? Yeah. The one thing I don't understand, though, and I'm a big fan fan of uh, television network that shows fixer uppers all the time. There's even one in Atlanta, and I love when they open the sheetrock and they find some problem in the wall, mm -hmm. and the the homeowner or the flippers go, "Oh, geez, now what?" And the guy goes, "I think that'll be an extra six hundred dollars." I look at that and go, gee, where I live, that would probably be an extra three to $6,000. <laughs> How are they getting away with $600? Uh, but the fact of the matter is construction costs are just high, and that's labor and materials. 
right? And uh, that's the big, you know, swing factor in whether it's um, building out tenant space in an office, um, you know, changing the bays in a warehouse, um, building ground-up construction in single-family and multi-family. Construction costs, labor, and materials are up. Thankfully, lumber prices have come down a little bit, but other building materials are up. Yeah, and when you think about it, I think it's one of the things that uh, has really helped existing product, if you will, uh, you know, go up in value and perform well when, when you can't afford to, to compete with it with new supply. We're talking with Mitch Rochelle, partnered with PwC, about their annual report they do with ULI, Emerging Trends in Real Estate. And uh, Mitch, when you survey all these folks in the industry, what do they say about the outlook for commercial real estate in the U.S. compared to the rest of the world? I, I think that and you can pick your metaphor about the U.S. economy versus other global economies um, as, you know, we're the cleanest shirt in a hamper or whatever silly <laughs> metaphor you want to use. But when you look at the fact that notwithstanding the strength of the U.S. dollar, foreign investors still can, and you know this as well as anybody, but, you know, your investment sales business, Michael, foreign investors continuing to look at U.S. real estate as opposed to real estate in their backyard, even though that, that real estate is price higher because of cap rate compression, the price higher because of the foreign currency exchange between their home currency and the U.S. dollar, um, that's, a huge, um, um, that's a huge notion that even though it's not on sale, they're going to buy it. And uh, so I think that um, U.S. real estate investors who are in the transaction side of the business know that the fact that foreign investors want our asset class, that should tell them something. Um, but I, I think that real estate at the end of the day is an incredibly local business. And one of the things that I realized as I travel the country speaking, uh, unfortunately I'm not coming to Atlanta this year, but as I travel the country speaking and I speak to folks, um, either at events, before, during, after, in the airport, whatever, I realized that everybody's perspective on real estate is really their backyard. And believe it or not, most real estate investors don't really look sort of into the next county, into the next state, let alone across the ocean at what's going on elsewhere. Um, and uh, I think that's one of the uh, probably most interesting things about doing these interviews because we do get that tremendous diversity of perspective because everybody brings their local flavor. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, yeah, I think it also depends on the size project, you know, that the projects are, are properties that they're used to dealing with. And, uh, um, and, and when you look at the results of these survey and this report, uh, Mitch, is there anything interesting that came out related to the various property sectors? Anything kind of jump out about expectations there that uh, might surprise anyone? Yeah, so the, there's the things that you'd expect, right? That multifamily is hot, industrials hot, if not both of those are on fire. What's interesting is there's a little bit of a retail resurgence, um, and there's two things happening in retail that I think are interesting and somewhat surprising. One is um, there, the strip mall sort of isn't dead, and there are places that feel very under-retailed uh, when you talk to folks locally. And the other thing that is not dead is the mall. And what's really interesting, and we're watching it before our eyes happen, is the, I'm going to use the word gentrification, for lack of a better word, the gentrification of malls into an alternative use that coexists with the traditional use. So the traditional use was retail, food, some entertainment, depending on the mall. But there was never an office use uh, in a mall. But what we're seeing more and more 
is the introduction of office because we do have this tremendous demand for medical office. And the coexistence of medical office and traditional mall retail just makes a lot of sense because you can kind of kill two birds with one stone um, and, you know, you can go to the food court. So we're seeing in a couple of places around the country, and I think this is a potentially sustainable trend, we're seeing um, somebody go to the mall for a doctor's appointment. The imaging center for the x-ray is also in the mall. Um, we're seeing urgent care popping up all over the country in strip centers, but even we're starting to see more of, more of that in enclosed malls, um, which is really, really fascinating. The other thing we're starting to see more and more of is when you have an anchor that's shuttered and that's a tremendous big box that there just may be no big tenant for, that box has a lot of warehouse distribution kind of capacity to it because it has big bays in the back. And we're slowly starting to see some of those places get used for um, solution to the last mile problem. So I think the interesting thing is how agile the real estate world is to find interesting short-term adaptive reuses for some of these spaces and some of these adaptive reuses have become permanent. Yeah. Um, the one last asset class that I'll just touch on briefly is the um, limited uh, select service from the side of um, lodging, which got a lot of attention earlier in the cycle. Lodging in general, because of its undersupply, was seeing 6 7% uh, rev bar, revenue per available room growth year over year. That started to flatten out a little bit. I almost liken that um, flattening out or slowing of that really sort of exponential growth in um, revenue in the lodging industry, I almost liken that to GDP in China, um, which is, you know, it's six, seven, almost double-digit growth, and then it slows down to 6 or 5% growth. Everybody starts worrying, but the fact of the matter is, what, who wouldn't kill for 5% growth on the top line? Uh, so even if, so, I think the lodging industry is, you know, dealing with the fact that they have brought a lot of supply on, online, but for the near term, um, th that's still really a healthy sector. So really across the board, um, real estate, property side by property side, has its pluses and minuses, um, but um, still pretty strong. Yeah, that's great. Well, Mitch, what would you leave our audience with when you just kind of look overall the, the entire report this year, kind of the sentiment? Uh, what does it kind of leave you with? I think there's, there's a trend in there, and it's our second trend, and uh, we call it uh, the siren call of TINA. And TINA stands for there's no alternative. I think the thing to remember, and it sort of puts a little bit of a ribbon around uh, remarks that I made in these two segments, which is when you look at yields of Treasury securities around the globe and you look at, let's say, $17 trillion worth of sovereign debt around the planet that has a zero or below yield, and you look at Switzerland, for example, which their entire Treasury curve out to 50 years is below zero. The German Treasury curve out to 30 years is below zero. And you start to say, if going back to what I said in the previous segment, if, if you're looking for a safe asset and you're looking for yield and you can't find it in sovereign debt anywhere on the planet, then U.S. dollar-denominated yields look really, really attractive. And if you look at real estate returns versus whether that be current returns, long-term returns, 
volatility. You look at real estate compared to stocks and bonds over time. And again, for those of you watching the YouTube version, there's some interesting charts that will probably pop up right now. Real estate looks really, really attractive. And to me, that's the thing that I think people who are really, really close to the asset class, you know, like most of your listeners, probably appreciate but never stepped back and took a look at. And I think that that's the thing that's going to extend the cycle for real estate. But again, the extension of the cycle for real estate is going to be heavily predicated on the extension of the overall economic growth in the United States. Right. So do you expect foreign investment in U.S. real estate to increase moving forward? I think so. Um, it, it, that, if you just look at the foreign purchase of U.S. Treasury securities, and again, that's a, um, that's a chart that will pop up probably, as I just said that, you, you'll, it's tremendous. I mean, they're just running towards U.S. dollar-denominated securities. Because, and you know what's interesting? You know the biggest buyer of U.S. Treasuries are, which created arguably an asset bubble. I'm going to come back to that in a second. That that, you know, the biggest buyer is central banks from other countries. Central banks from other countries need to buy um, yielding assets, and they can't. You know, buy their, they're buying their own to try to stimulate their economy, but at the same time, they need yield for their uh, treasury. And what are they doing? They're buying U.S. securities. The one thing I'll say about um, economic expansions and when they end, um, and let's kick the inverted treasury curve to the side for a second. The one thing that you and I have observed, and Michael, we've talked about this for years, is that many economic busts or recessions that we've had in our country were preceded by a bursting of a bubble in an asset class. So most recently we saw housing. If you go back to the beginnings of our respective careers, you saw the savings and loan crisis, which was commercial real estate largely. And somewhere in the middle you saw the dot-com bubble burst. Asset class bubble bursting have caused recessions, or at least preceded recessions. Um, there is one asset class bubble that everybody needs to keep an eye on, and that's debt. Or bonds. What's fascinating is that when yields go down, and you'll learn this somewhere in finance, okay, or in, in economics, when yields go down, prices go up. So everybody's focusing on how low yields are. The 10-year Treasury at 17, the you know the 30-year drop below two, at least it's back over two right now. But when those yields came down, or zero percent yields around the country, that means prices are at all-time highs, and we do have an asset bubble in uh, the bond market. We have an asset bubble potentially in our Treasury security market, and that's happening at the same time that we're running close to a $1 trillion budget deficit in the United States. So you just kind of stop and pause there for a second, and just the thing I keep an eye on the most is whether or not we have a bubble in fixed income. Um, but to the extent we do, real estate looks very attractive because yields on real estate are got a pretty decent spread over treasuries right now. And that's what I was thinking while you were saying that is, hey, that could be, impact the economy, but doesn't that make real estate sort of an, an attractive investment? It, yes, it absolutely does. And I think too many times I've been sitting on panels and people have started talking about the correlation between treasuries and cap rates, and I start to yawn or start looking at my phone to see who I can text because I find the conversation boring. I think the thing we really need to focus on is as investors search for yield around the planet, uh, let's keep an eye on who's buying U.S. real estate, what they're doing to prices, 
and whether or not we're creating a bubble in real estate, because the thing that I worry about is a bubble in real estate. I don't see one right now, and I don't think I'm blind or I'm looking at it through rose-colored glasses, but that's the thing I, you know, I do worry about asset bubbles more than anything else, and, and I honestly don't see one happening. I was more worried earlier in this expansion when people were chasing yield on, in coastal cities. The fact that the dollars that are chasing real estate are chasing it coast to coast, and, you know, we didn't get into the top cities in this country uh, for investment, but I like the fact that those cities are throughout the United States, not just on the coast. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, we're uh, marketing around a $90,000 uh, Class A apartment complex, and uh, it's in a southern, southeast city. And, uh, you know, buyers are coming from California and New York, and they love the investment. Uh, they love the, the higher cap rate, and we're seeing the same thing, that they're buying property all over the, the U.S. And you mentioned uh, you were bored on that panel. You were never boring here, Mitch. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. Uh, our time is up, but you are never boring. Thanks for being with us. Michael, it's always a pleasure, and I apologize for not being there in person, but I promise the next time I'm in the 404, I'll stop down and say hello. Sounds good. Thank you, Mitch. And uh, Thanks to the audience for listening. All right, and thank you for uh, being with us, and thanks for sharing the show. Appreciate uh, your comments. Please connect with us on your favorite social media site. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Commercial Agent Success Strategies, incredible training for commercial agents. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com.